to watch over and over again people come into class and have that same like aha moment around theory I was like oh my goodness I think I might be hooked it's like a privilege to like to just be a part of that and to just put information on people's path and then they can do with it what they want and so to be a part of a program that was specifically focused and named racial justice I was like oh maybe higher ed can do some of what I feel like I need to do in my heart to feel good about walking this planet is Emily Shields. And this is Andrew Seligson. And I'm Marisol Morales, and you're listening to the Compact Nation Podcast. Hi, everyone. How's everyone doing today? Hello, hello. Um, you know, all right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty yeah. solid uh, pandemic times answer. It's as good as it gets. Yeah. 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 No, it's strong. I'm pretty good. It's uh, not so terribly hot here in Boston, Massachusetts, which for lately is uh, is a win. Yeah, win. I've heard that. And your air conditioning and stuff is working well. So far, yeah. All right, not gonna lie. Uh, I'm pretty good too. My mom came home finally after like five months in the hospital, so uh, that has been good to have her, as well as challenging. But you know, that's what happens when you're a sandwich generation. Yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, so, are there any announcements? I've got one, Marisol. Uh, you do? Yes, what is I it? do. <laughs> so, people may be aware that we're in the midst of a pandemic. <laughs> I don't want to, I'm not trying to break news here on the podcast. And one consequence that people also may be aware of, but they might not, is that there is an emerging national shortage of poll workers because. A pretty significant proportion of the people who take time out of their lives to make sure our elections work properly in in most years are older people and the health risks associated with being at a desk with a lot of people coming through or a table or whatever in a public place, they don't fit very well for older people right now. So we are part of a growing effort to recruit young people who it's appropriate for health-wise, et cetera, to contribute by registering to be poll workers wherever they live. It's a ballot access issue. If we don't have enough poll workers, many states and localities are facing closing down large numbers of polling places. We know that there are many places that don't have enough already, and we've seen how that uh, tends to burden communities that are already facing lots of uh, kind of headwinds in terms of full participation tends to disproportionately affect them. So contributing to keeping polling places open contributes to giving everybody a voice in our democracy. So Campus Compact is is doing work in this way. So uh, you can just go to compact.org slash poll workers, compact.org slash poll workers. That's P-O-L-L, two L's in poll of that kind. And uh, and find out about it, or we'll have something right up on the homepage at compact.org. You can also, if you want to just spread the word about having folks just sign up to be poll workers, you can send them to powerthepolls.org slash campus. 
and folks can sign right up and then they'll be contacted by local elections officials once they do that. They enter their location information and all that. So uh, whether it's in the communities where campuses are located or home communities where students will be, wherever they're going to be physically located this fall and be able to vote, that's where they can work the polls. So it's incredibly important and we're uh, pleased to be part of the effort, but uh, we need all hands on deck because the shortage is enormous and most states uh, are not at all confident that they're going to be able to close the gap. So no amount of effort uh, would be wasted in this because we need lots and lots of people to get involved. So compact.org slash poll workers, learn all about it. And have you ever worked the polls before, Andrew or Emily? I have never served as a poll worker, as it turns out. Uh, but, uh, I always appreciate the people who do, you know, and it always, I think for many people, it just always seemed like something like they're the people who do it. And I don't really know how they end up in that role, but they do it. And this is a year where like people have to figure out how do people get in that role and step up and be part of it. If you're in a category where it's safe for, for you to be out there. Yeah, I, I haven't either. Um, I do tend to get involved on election day doing a lot of get out the vote stuff. So I guess it just, you know, that tends to be I'm door knocking till the minute the polls close and, and driving people and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, this would be a good year to look at it. I know I've talked to some friends and I think it's a time when those of us younger on the younger side of life need to take a look and step up because I think that um, older folks have been really carrying that and may not be able to this year. Um, and it's super important. So yeah, it's something I've thought about. I'm really excited about this initiative. I think it's a great way for um, us to engage students and get them interested in it and really help them see how much work goes into this important piece of our democracy. Yeah, I've, I've done, I've been an election judge before. And it's actually, I mean, you're there all day, but it's actually really fun and the people that you meet and see come through. Um, so I really enjoyed it. I'll probably sign up uh, myself this year to, to participate. Um, the year I was doing it, there were a lot of like um, young people, uh, like high school age students through MIFA Challenge doing it. It was great to kind of see them there and how much they learn. And so I'm excited about this initiative too. And I've actually been dreaming about this for a long time, like hoping that we would get involved in this work. So I'm really excited to, to see that as part of our continuing work around uh, democratic engagement. And one thing I just want to mention, like everything Campus Compact does related to elections, this is a strictly nonpartisan effort. Um, and, you know, again, this is just about making sure elections happen, that they happen for everyone. And uh, so regardless of anybody's uh, own interest, you can vote, right? Do that. You can work separately before, uh, you know, Election Day, whatever. But this is a, a, about playing a role that's neutral on Election Day. So, uh, yeah, just so everybody knows that. Yeah, awesome. Thanks. Any other announcements? Good news? No good news. No. Is that still a thing? I think there is. Keep hope alive. Yes. <laughs> Any good books? I'm reading uh, these books that have nothing to do with anything. Uh, these books, I'm suddenly forgetting her name. Jane Gardam, I think is her name. Uh, and it's a series of books kind of uh, grounded in a set of characters around. Uh, a, it's like these lawyers who mostly worked 
in the context of the British Empire in Hong Kong and uh, lived sort of post-World War II through the period where Hong Kong transitioned back to Chinese control. Uh, anyway, they're just great novels, entertaining and uh, putting my brain in a different space. It's a, a trilogy of books that kind of see the world through the perspectives of different characters. So The Old Filth is the name of the first one. Uh, I've been uh, reading the Parable of the Talents, which is like uh, from Octavia Butler. So this is the second one. Uh, it's probably not the best one to read in the time of pandemic and uh, global people, but it's 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 good. Uh, it feels a little. Uh, uh, I don't know. She was foreshadowing some stuff <laughs> that's occurring, but it's a good book. And she's a beautiful writer. It is strange how many cultural products over the last, I don't know, very long time seem to be foreshadowing many things about our current moment. Once you think about them through this lens, it's like, should all have been clear? Should all have been clear? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I did finish my big pandemic read that I started, which was around um, the wives of Henry VIII. Big, big old giant book about that that was awesome yeah it was like 800 pages it's really really good really well researched it was awesome all right pandemic reads maybe that's the next section segment for our, our podcast as we move forward uh, into the fall when our next season will start off so on this episode of the podcast we're lucky to have a conversation with the authors of the activist academic engaged scholarship for resistance hope and social change so Perfect topic during this time. Um, the authors are Colette Can and Eric DeMolnier. Um, and I had a conversation with them just as they were doing the book launch um, and was really excited to, to learn about the work that it took to bring this book into fruition um, and really kind of the, um, the kind of true stories that they experienced as um, activists, as scholars, as parents who are trying to do this work all within the context of, of higher ed. Um, so let's uh, let's hear that interview with them. All right. So thank you both for taking the time to to come on um, the podcast and uh, share with us about about your book, uh, The Activist Academic. You just had the book launch yesterday. So if you could first start off by um, introducing yourselves um, and maybe introducing um, the, the book. So um, my introduction, I was a teacher for about 10 years in Oakland and San Francisco, um, started teaching at a school in, in San Francisco um, that was created out of a consent decree brought about by a lawsuit from the NAACP that found that in the southeast section of the city, there were no sort of college preparatory school, which is where the majority of black people lived. And so they, they created this school to be sort of a college prep school. And when I was there, and we also out of that same consent decree, there was a desegregation plan that meant that I think no school could have more than 42% of any race or something like that. Okay. And so the schools were, were fairly 
desegregated in that regard, but we always would start because we were in um, Big Hunter's Point um, with a full 42% black students. And at graduation, our graduation rates were about 20% of the graduation was black. And so wow. I was like, we were school designed to support this black community in San Francisco and we were failing at it. And so I, I, you know, was trying to make sense of all of that and reading a lot of stuff and went back to, I had done a lot of like work in the school to try to create change. And that was really difficult. So I went and got my doctoral degree in part because I wanted to understand that, but also because I knew we could do something better by, by youth. And so I went in part, to learn and get a better understanding, but also to really uh, figure out how to get build the social capital and the knowledge to start a school that would serve um, students. And so that's what I did. I went to grad school. Um, and then after that, I worked with a group of folks to start a school in East Oakland where we uh, it was built specifically for the youth in East Oakland um, to to be kind of an anti-racist social justice school. Um, and that's where, um, you know, and that's kind of the work I was planning to do. And then the Oakland was taken over by a state administrator, uh, the, city, the state took over the Oakland Public Schools, and the Oakland schools appointed, and the first state administrator was pretty progressive, but then they appointed a new one who proceeded to shut down all these small schools that we had organized to open. Oh, wow. So our school got shut down. I got taken out. It was really ugly. I was like in a low place. And that's when I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I had no desire to be an academic, um, but um, my, my mentor, uh, Margo, because I was at the time, was like, higher ed is a great place for activists. Like you get to choose the work you do. You have a lot of flexibility with time. Um, and so, and she was doing work at, at San Francisco state. She had taught some courses at Berkeley when I was there. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of how I decided to go into higher ed. And, you know, we, I think Colette and I both ended up in the East Coast, both in California, at the same time trying to make sense of what it means to now be in this higher ed academic space and to maintain kind of our commitment to young people in communities like Oakland and San Francisco. And, um, and, and now I'm in Worcester and sort of what does that look like? And so I think we started writing this book, not to write a book, but to just sort of communicate and make sense of together are that journey and how to be in this academic world and not lose touch with our, my sort of core commitments um, about social justice and racial justice in, in, with young people in particular. Great, thanks. And Colette? And one piece I think if you could maybe go back just a little bit, because I think it's an important part of this, this, the story you just told, is that after the small schools were shut down, didn't they find that the students at your school had something like the highest gains in test scores, not the test scores matter, but if it's the measurement they're going to use, you all had met that. <laughs> so well, that. It was one of those crazy things, right? So we, we ended up getting moved after our first year and we had really good scores the first year. And then we moved the second year. They moved us to a new building. We lost a lot of students as a result. And then we got all the like kids who were kicked out of other schools in ninth grade. And so then our test scores went down that year. And so that was one of the arguments they used. And then the third year, 
with those same students, we had gone so much higher from that down year up, but that was after they had already decided to close our school. So collective mm-hmm. data, huh? <laughs> um, so and the question was, how did, how did we get into this work? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think for me, um, I, I don't know. I just, I don't remember a time when I didn't think I was going to teach or be an educator. My great grandmother was a educator in a one room schoolhouse and my great aunt and uncle were both teachers. My grandfather was an administrator in New York public schools. My grandma I was very close to also a teacher. Um, so it's in the blood. Born, it's a, when my sister was born, we were, you know, teaching her with my red pencil, you know, the big red pencils we used to have. Um, and so I, I just, I think I always knew I was going to teach. And so um, I, I coached for a while. I coached volleyball and then I ended up teaching in a Catholic school. And um, at one point in time, I was teaching math and I had one black student in my class who was from East Palo Alto. and uh, just watching the way the school was not responsive to who she was and all the gifts that she brought and how isolated and alone that she was. Mm. Um, I worked with the, uh, one of the administrators who um, taught summer, I got to teach in summer readers for an amazing program. Um, and so he ran that and I was like, well, I, we could do better. This, it doesn't make any sense. And so we worked together to bring in cohorts of students um, and because of Summer Bridge, we brought in Summer Bridge students, most of whom were from East Palo Alto as well. Um, and so, and the cohorts graduated. And yet it was still ridiculously tough. It was ridi- like, you know, they hung out in my room or they hung out in, um, you know, with Greg Monfields, who was teaching at the same school at the time. They were in somebody's room and they were together, but they weren't, you know, the, the ignorance of the school was so much. Right? Like it was, uh, you know, called on for Martin Luther King Day, you know, all the stuff, the Heroes and Holidays right. stuff. And um, it wasn't the same as Summer Bridge. It wasn't the same as like, you know, they were educated to color for the most part at Summer Bridge. It mm-hmm. was family, it was love. And the summer would be over and then they were in the 10th grade and we were like back in this kind of hostile environment. And it would be Summer Bridge and we'd be back and Summer Bridge and back. And there was a point at which and this was way back in the day when Vince Matthews was running Summer Bridge, not running San Francisco. <laughs> and then, you know, so he and I were talking. I was like, yeah, I, I, like, I, just, I feel like we could be doing this better. And I was like, I, I feel like what, I, what is needed is folks to just be super thoughtful about how do we bring back what we already knew and was mm. dismantled about how we educate black kids. It's not like we didn't know how to do it. And, right. But that was destroyed. And so you know, so he and I had a long talk and um, he was like, yeah, but there's good work being done here too, right? Like somebody has to be here for the kids who are here. And I was like, I hear that. And I also trust that there are people who could do that. Uh, my focus is here. This is where I'm at. And when I got to graduate school, I realized that I actually had a lot to learn about myself. Like I had a lot to learn about, like there were just theory that was so powerful and important for me to understand how race worked in the world. Like I, it, you know, I intuitively knew it as a black person, right? right. What made it hard for that cohort, for the different cohorts that we brought in, was that there are no bus that run east-west connecting East Palo Alto. Like, so they either had to walk or 
I had to wake up at five in the morning to, you know, bike over to the school to grab a school van to go pick them up so that they're not having to do this, right? That, that institutional right. racism part is not accounted for. We assume that it's just the interpersonal, right? Or mm-hmm. we just think it's the internalized, but the like, obstacles. it's the, the other stuff, right? That people are like, no, it's just the kids, but it's like, you know, they're waking up. I'm picking them up at McDonald's at like, you know, seven in the morning. Nobody else is, get, you know, has to get up and then get to that so that we can get to school and, and finish homework and whatnot. Like, you know, it just it, people don't think about that larger systemic and institutional aspect. And I had like kind of in, knew it, of course, I knew it and carried it because, you know, I've been black for a long time. And so, um, but the theory was so like life giving mm-hmm. and I loved it. And, and I love teaching. I then Eric and I actually talked together with a number of other folks and to watch over and over again, people come into class, uh, come into Pedro Nagueta's uh, race and ethnicity class or come into the current issues class at Berkeley and have that same like aha moment around theory. I was like, oh my goodness, I think I might be hooked. I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> this is <laughs> like, magic. it's like a privilege to like, to just be a part of that and to yeah. you know, just put information on in people's path and then they can do with it what they want. Um, and so, uh, and also while I was there, I got to work at Principal Leadership Institute with uh, Jeanette Hernandez um, and Linda Treadway. And so, to be a part of a program that was specifically focused and named racial justice mm, equity. Yeah. I was like, oh, maybe higher ed can do some of what I feel like I need to do in my heart to make, you know, to feel good about walking this planet. Um, and so I ended up in academia, but that first year, you know, my daughter was one at the time and every message that I got was you don't really belong here. Right. Like, one of the things mm-hmm. we talked about yesterday was, um, you know, people say, oh, before you tenure, you know, don't have kids before you have tenure. I already had a kid. So you're already telling me I don't belong here. Right. Right. Or, um, oh, you need to do research and you need to service. But teaching was what was in my blood. And um, working with K-12 was what was in my blood. So if I'm working in schools and, and youth organizations in the community, I'm already not, I don't belong. Right. Like I don't, I don't, if that's what you want to do, then academia is not for you. People in academia what they want to do is they want to write and they want to research. They want to research on people. They want to write about people. They don't want folks to have a voice in whatever they, you know, they were doing. And so I I felt like a lot of everything that I wanted to do and I felt was the ethical just thing to do. People were like, you, maybe you could do that, but if if you can, it will be a long time from now after you get tenure or maybe not, or it could be your side hustle, right? Um, and so that started the conversations with Eric because he was doing, you know, we were just, we were burned out. It was so much to try and do. It was like having two different jobs. Mm-hmm. And how do you integrate that justice work as a part of your academic identity rather than, you know, doing it on the side? And we started having conversations with a number of folks and they all ended up being in the field of education um, because you don't like, leave that organizing self or that teaching self behind yeah and that stays a part of who you are and so that's what really started for me this conversation um that led to the book great so can you tell us a little bit you just launched a book the activist academic engaged scholarship for resistance hope and social change and so like as you were sort of putting this together like what were some of the things that 
kind of stood out? What, what are the, the messages for those who haven't read the book yet? Like, what are the messages from, from um, this book? And what are you most proud of? Mm-hmm. You want me to go first this time? Yes. <laughs> and I just have to say that the cover is dope. Oh. The artwork, I'm, I'm really appreciating this. So thank you. It's beautiful. The artist is amazing. And Eric can, I guess, say more about, about her if you want to later. But she, yeah, she's amazing. And I uh, encourage everyone to go check out her works. And, and also thank you to her for doing this. Um, so... I guess the thing I'm most proud about in the book is um, how it was written. Um, We didn't have background and experience in narrative writing in this way. And so we kind of started, we didn't really know, but we had read other books that felt right to us, like talking books Hmm. Um, and bell hooks, uh, especially in the piece where she's writing uh, to herself, and so it's like a conversation. Where she and interviewed herself, right? Like Lori Watkins interviewing Bell Hooks or something. Um, and those pieces felt right to us. Um, and so we knew we want, because what what we wanted to write about, we had come to in conversation together and with many colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other side of it is in having that, having the how we came to understand activism in academia came about in conversation, um, it also occurred to us that it came about in the real tempo of life, right? And so uh, it, it wasn't like we dropped kids off and then we showed up at work and we were at work for eight hours and, mm-hmm. and it was uninterrupted time and then we came home and we wrote some more. Like all of those, you know, the dominant views of what academia looks like, the old white guy with the elbow patches and the dusty office, were that like, that was not us. <laughs> and, um, and it was a lot of, we are, both of our kids were young. Salia was young and year two, Mike and Tyler were really young. And so, um, wh- who we were isn't visible in academia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah going to conferences here, <laughs> we were talking about this with, you know, babies, you know, and being oh, yeah. front or, uh, you know, and just, I could tell you where I was in my career by how Celia got to conferences. She was either in the Bjorn or she was riding the no pedal bike and then she promoted to the scooter. And then, you know, like, and then there was a point where she didn't need something in order to keep up with, I was like, come on, Celia, we got to get to the next session. And then there was like this time where she was like, right, you know, we were almost eye level and she wasn't needing anything, and she was just running us alongside with her backpack of activities. She was taking care of you, making sure you got to your conference <laughs> session on time. And there was this one AERA where I lost my wallet, and um, she hadn't lost anything. She was like, well, you should have had a backpack. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, like, we wanted that to be in it, right? Like, yeah. you know, we're having conversations while we're you know, pushing crayons across the table. And then I forgot my pen and I have to ask for a crayon back so I can take notes, you know, <sighs> that, that parenting negotiation that's happening in the moment. Um, so that it makes room for other people to be like, Oh, okay. I can, I can bring my kids and I don't have to put them in kitty core if I don't want to. I can say, I mean, Celia has, it's so funny to hear what she picks up from the same conference session. We're sitting side by side. And then later, you know, she'll mention something and I'll be like, huh, well, that, that, you know, like, I didn't know you were even listening. I thought you, you had your headphones on sometimes, you, had, you were reading a book sometimes, you were playing. I, was like, I had no idea you were listening and that that was the piece that was going to be the most 
right. you know, engaging for you. Uh, so I wanted that and to me, and that's the thing I'm most proud of because I, w- I want that to be visible for other people uh, to not say you don't bring your kids or your kids are in conflict with your work, your right. family is in conflict with your work. Like that's not even, that's not even, you know, for not to essentialize, but for like black communities, kids aren't hidden. Kids are like sitting straight up. Yeah. I, I went to work with my parents a lot of the time. <laughs> you know, it's not like, I, I, that's all like, my parents were in school for much of the time. Um, like until I was 10, they were in school. I went to class with them. I was bored. I went outside. Like you, you're not, not with them. Right. right. And so then all of a sudden I'm expected to not have her with me. It didn't make sense. That That's so funny. Like, as you were sharing those stories, I was thinking of like when I first entered higher ed, my son was a year old and I was, I was in charge of some of like our international programs and I had to go to Mexico and I was still breastfeeding. And so I had to like bring my mom, bring him breastfeed in the middle meetings and was like, this, this is who I am. If you want me to do this, like, right. Or, you know, but also like the opportunities of that. I, I uh, took him with me to a conference in South Africa and I was like, I'm really sorry. Like, they're like, no, no problem. Like we'll have our college students hang out with him. And, you know, we went to, um, like a community visit and they're like, Oh, he can hang out with the college students here. And like, they were so accommodating and like, like not making me feel ashamed of Mm -hmm. having to, to, to bring him, you know, as a, as a single mom, I'm going out of the country for two weeks. I'm not going to not bring my, my kid. And just the differences in, in those spaces. I was like, that's pretty dope. So I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm proud that you did it within that context and giving voice to that reality. And, and, you know, I don't know if, if you experienced this as well, but it, like, I hope that the book doesn't sanitize it and make it feel like it was brave and easy. Like, mm. you know, if I'm, when she was six months and I had to give a talk at AERA and she was in her baby Bjorn, like, I was like, I'm going to do it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I can't believe I'm doing this, right? Like, yeah, yes. <laughs> it was the judgment was still at, oh yeah the judgment I perceived that they were making of me absolutely you know those assumptions of single black motherhood it was like in my head at the same time as this other voice that was like I wish you would say something right um so Eric I'll pass it to you and I didn't want to leave you with uh having to to, to do it but if you could say something about two fly because I know um I know. I mean, I found Two Fly because when I was doing the, the work with Insight, which was uh, like a youth critical media and youth producers program, um, my colleague knew Two Fly from New York. And so um, she had done all of our T-shirt design. Um, and so that's how we got connected with her through my colleague. Um, so her name is Two Fly. That's all I got. I can look her up and see whether we can pass that along. Well, I do want to put a blast out to her website. It's T-O-O. F-L-Y-N-Y-C.com. So to fly New York city.com. Right. Yeah, yeah. She's really talented. Yeah, she is. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think I would just echo that the, the process component, I think gets missed in most of academic writing. So for me, I think the point was, you know, at least for me, when we started doing our kids were young, we started this work like a decade ago um, mm-hmm. or even more, like it was a while back. And, um, and for me, it was like a space to talk and write with Colette to make sense of what was going on. I was, 
you know, teaching in a high school classroom. I had college students taking a class that I had doing work in the school. And then I had students studying to become teachers who were like observing me teach in the high school. And I wasn't always that good. And they were like judging me about that. And so it was just like the space to talk with Colette or others to sort of say like, how do I make sense of all of this kind of messiness when things don't go the way you expect? And, um, you know, that time when you show up and your lesson plan is like on your laptop that you left at home and you're like, oh shit, what do I do? <laughs> and of course I would be yelling at my students who are MATs if they ever did that, of course I'm doing that. And so it's just like, um, and so it, part of it is to sort of say like, I'm okay. I'm not crazy. I, I can do this. I belong. And also to make sense of stuff. And when things went south in my class at, at college or whatever, I would talk with, I mean, that's what we do. We talk through these right. things and stuff like that. And then I come to different understandings and then it's through these dialogues that I get to a new awareness. Mm-hmm. And in academia, what I'd find is that I just read these pieces where people like share this really dope stuff. And I'm just like, I'm not worthy to be with these people, but we miss the process of how people came to their ideas and how so much of our ideas. I mean, as I was thinking yesterday and talking, I was like, how many things the conversations with Margot had changed the way I thought about something and, and helped me get to a new place or, and all the people that were involved in this. And then we go off and write stuff by ourselves and make it seem like we just figured all this right. out and we've been sitting on this knowledge and everything is like, and so that notion of the process of us learning in the messiness, I think was really important for, I think both of us as we started to write and also, and for me, theoretically it was like, you know, we hear this talk about praxis and fairy and pedagogy, um, but no one talks about the reflection process and what that looks like and how that occurs, right? And so for me, this was kind of this form of writing, which, we, you know, we sort of, I think, borrowed from different spaces because there's some sort of constructing something out of multiple narratives to make it more of a single narrative that I think we borrowed particularly from critical race theory and the mm-hmm. counter narratives and Colette brought a lot of that in. And we had like these talking books, which were more like just kind of captured dialogues, but then we had those. In. So we were just borrowing from different ideas um, to really come to a place that allowed us to do both show how our lived reality were was, but also to show that there's like a deep analysis of that collectively. Um, and I think that was why it was really important for us to call it some collective form of, of narrative or, um, and, and I don't, I think that gets lost a lot of times too. So it's been really a privilege and honor to work with Colette so intimately in this way and to, sh- and to share that process. And it's not that it only happens with Colette, but it was like cool to capture in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, yeah, that process really comes through. And then I think we also wanted, as we both sort of shared, entering academia, I think was scary. I mean, I think for me, at least right. I had this sense that the ivory, like I, I didn't really study activist research methods in college, in grad school. You know, it was very, it was more traditional. Even though we had people who were pretty progressive and activists in orientation, it was always felt that like activism was over here, you know, academia was over here. And that was like killing me trying to do it that way. And so part of this book was really our journey to try to figure out how do we make this sustainable and how do we do the work that means something that is feeds our soul that you know, captures that and, 
is the work that the academy should value, right? right and right. so, um, and so we then sort of took these ideas of research, teaching, and service, and how do we reframe them in an activist sort of framework? And so that's kind of the way the book got structured um, was to sort of see those sections and recalibrate them in a way that would be sustainable, in a way that would not only show the messiness, but also the role of like humor. Um, love, love that sometimes looks like a hug when I'm crying or, or something, but sometimes looks like a kick in the ass when I do something that I shouldn't have. Right. And, um, and so really feeling like that, those processes need to be forefronted, not to say that there wasn't stuff that came out of it that we also wanted in the book as well. Right. Um, but that process was really important to capture. Yeah. I appreciate that kind of layeredness of, of it. Um, just to add, to go back to that uh, Dana's question from yesterday, you know, one of the chapters we wrote, we had, was the question? Uh, the question was, how do we make sure that um, the kind of Lord gatekeeper voice or the nominative voice in academia doesn't take residence in our heads and uh, we hold ourselves accountable to deliberatory thinking and um, when we first, one of the first pieces we wrote, we submitted as a journal article and one of the, the feedback that we got that we needed to you know, do in the revise and we submit stage was, it sounded like we, uh, yeah, like we were too nice to each other. It was too like sanitized. Dialogue, it was too, what was it? Sanitized, like we were just, it was too clean of a conversation. Too clean of a conversation and there was no like conflict in it. And then, you know, you have to like think, well, why did we do that? Because it certainly wasn't that like, <laughs> like a week will pass where I'm like, oh, I can't even look at him. <laughs> Don't call me Eric. <laughs> <laughs> and I know he feels the same way about me. But, um, uh, and that didn't show up in the piece, right? And so where did, where did that right, right. desire to erase that from the story come oh, from? Interesting. And so then, you know, we had to go back and be like, oh, yeah, like, why did we do that, right? Like, why did, where is that, that pressure coming from to make it that performativity? The, the collegiality yeah. that we know is not really. Mm-hmm. I remember walking into my first um, faculty meeting, and it was for uh, actually the College of Education. And I had come from doing community work organizing. And I was like, ooh, people talk to each other like this? I was like, it was, it was very not expected because of that whole collegiality uh, farce, I guess. That. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how did you put that back in? Hmm. We may, I don't remember how we did it for that particular article, but I know that as it, it informed the way we wrote going forward. Mm-hmm. To, remember not just the productive or that remembering that all of the conversations we have are productive and not just the ones where we felt good in them and we were like vibing and and building off each other. Oh yeah. And this and that, but that, you know, the tense conversations, like one of the pieces in the book was we were going to a conference and Celia was in the back and, um, <laughs> so you know, it, it's not a good look on me, but I'll share it. I want to stay in an Airbnb, and I was like, mm, "That's gonna be nasty." Like people have been, you know, who knows if people clean up after themselves, and you know, whatever. I was like, "Let's just stay at a hotel." It's the same amount of money, and he was like, "No, no, no." But we'll have a kitchen, and we'll have a deck. We'll save money down the line, and I was like, mm. 
I don't know. <laughs> you know, and I remember I went in and the first thing I did was like, I lifted the cushions. <laughs> you know, somebody's really clean. And I saw like crumbs and then I was like, I don't want to be here. And so I was like, hot. I was like, so mad. Well, you didn't even miss the part about you couldn't find a parking spot. Yeah, for, like, and that was like, you were so, you were pissed before you even got in the Airbnb. So it was all bad. Before we even walked in the house and I lifted up the cushion, we couldn't find parking because it wasn't a hotel where you got parking spots. And so I was just like, like, I was like, oh, we can't even unload our stuff. Oh, I'm so mad. And so, like, he was like, I'm going to take Salia. I'm going to take the luggage. Wait. <laughs> and then, I'm going to keep Salia away from you right now. <laughs> I was so hot. I was so hot. I was so upset to not be just at a hotel. Right. And then, you know, so I was like, I was It's like being at home, to- but in a different place. And. <laughs> With all the work. Somebody yeah. else's dirt. Like it wasn't even my own dirt. I don't want to cook. I don't want to cook when I'm home. <laughs> so then we got in there and like we still had to be up all night because we didn't have our presentation together. You know, like it was just a lot going on. And then I don't remember, but like in putting the presentation together, there was just a lot of like shortness and like, ah. Uh. And then we ended up like taking a break on this incredible roof deck. And I was like, ah. Oh. I might even have to say I'm sorry because it, like, <laughs> it was like a lot. And so we were like, that. those are the pieces that we also have to include. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. That's so true. <laughs> I love yeah, it. you don't even think about how there's people's like little idiosyncrasies too that just like get annoying or whatever and how you work through those, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's part of, right, working, working together, but both. Good right, but that stuff job. never shows up in That's anything, you know, like none of the, yeah, and some of it's silly or not so significant, and some of it's way more significant, right, um, and, but, but, like, also, I think, like, we have to figure out how to do, you know, that work together with people who sometimes annoy us, right, but also sometimes that we care about, and, and, like, that's, I think, our challenge in life more broadly, right, um, and so, you know, I think trying to pose those differences, also recognizing what does it mean for me as a, you know, white man doing this work in academia next to and in conversation with a black woman and thinking about just those dynamics and what does it mean to be supported? Like all of that stuff needs to be wrestled with. And, and it's not easy and it's messy. Right. Yeah. So we'll, we're going to close out, but I guess if you were um, giving one piece of advice to, you know, brand new or incoming um, junior scholar who who has this disposition um, and who wants to engage in this, what what would it be? Your turn to go first. Oh, dang. (laughs) Um, wow, that's a great question and a tough question. I don't know if there's one thing, but I guess I would say that like, I, I felt like I was faking a lot. And I think part of writing this book was my claiming that I belong. Right. And, um, and I guess, um, get folks to, who are committed to justice and, activist work and um and trying to address the inequities in the academy um like like not only you know i guess i would say the same message that i used to say to our youth at east oakland high school right which was um you 
we don't want to prepare you to go to UC Berkeley or a school like that to fit in there. We want you to be prepared to go and change those places, right? And so, like, how do you embrace an identity that's like recognizes the flaws, but also commits to creating the change of those spaces? So don't, you know, I, in in some ways, we wrote, we, we even talked about this at the beginning, right? The images that you get in academy in the academia, right? You get all these books of like how to survive the academy, and. Um, and I think that we wrote that this in some ways is a counter narrative to that survival mm-hmm. stuff that like, we're not trying to get folks to survive. The Academy is full of a lot of power and privilege. So embrace that power and privilege and, and, and do more than survive, like use it to, to make a difference, both with the people you work with in the Academy, but also the people outside of it and embrace that. Right. Um, and, you know, go, I guess, you know, your audacious, bold self, and um, um, and uh, yeah, and don't don't just aim to survive. Not survival is easy, and that it isn't a big piece of it as well. But yeah. um, how do we also think beyond survival to a way that we can find joy, that we can um, find justice, and thrive while still surviving and finding it sustainable? Thanks, Colette. Um, I think I'd want to send a, uh, a piece of advice. Oh, that sounds a little haughty. I don't know. <laughs> it feels uncomfortable, but I'm gonna I'm gonna send it anyways to established scholars, I guess, um, as well as novice scholars, not scholars at the beginning of their journey. I feel like for those of us who've got gotten tenure and or have some type of more permanent status in the academy, to like do our best to put ourselves in check all the time to just get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Right? Like we don't, I feel like folks who I love and also myself, sometimes like I'll, I'll find myself getting like really serious about like, no, but you have to do it. You have to do it in this way. And then somebody will push back and I'm like, and be like, but why? And I'm like, ah, that's true. But why? Like, <laughs> it's just a, you know, it's a random hoop that you, you know, right. make them jump through in order to keep them out. Um, and so like, how do you just get out of the way and how do you continue to make room for new ideas and, um, uh, make room for new scholars, right. Who are going to be far more progressive than, than I am. Right. And, and they, if you're a gatekeeper, even if you're a gate, you know, in whatever way that shows up for you, you're a gatekeeper nonetheless. Um, and then for the, for folks who are coming into academia, I'd say, you know, when you have an idea and someone proposed it and is like, no, you can't do it. You can't do it that way. Um, to stop and really think, do I want you know, to push back on it? If somebody you could push back on, then uh, that's somebody you could probably keep working with um, as long as they're willing to kind of give and take. And if they're not, maybe you need to find somebody else to work with. Right. Maybe you don't need to change to fit their idea of it, but maybe you need to find someone who can take you in and not uncritically say, yes, do whatever you want. But why do you need to do it that way? And why is it that that's the work that you feel necessary to do in the moment? And let's also talk about uh, what is your goal? If your goal is to get tenure, do what you need to do. And let's also kind of think strategically about how to make sure that you also get tenure. Mm-hmm. Right. It might not, it might mean that you also put out another version of the same thing, or it might be that we think about um, how to present it 
in your, your TMP case, or maybe it's um, working behind the scenes to make sure that the outside reviewers are folks who understand the brilliance of that person's work, right? Like, I think there's lots of different ways to do it, but I, what I would hate to see happen for a new scholar is that they end up getting socialized into something that doesn't make them feel good, and then eventually they leave because it doesn't feel like home for them, right? How do you move into a new place and decorate it with all your stuff <laughs> and then just full on move in? Um, some of that is you're going to need people who are going to help you do that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, both of you. Um, we are encourage folks to check out the Activist Academic Engaged Scholarship for Resistance, Hope, and Social Change by Colette Can And Eric, you're going to have to say your last name because I don't know if I can pronounce it. Demolinaire. The Molinaire. Uh, so thank you all so much for uh, joining us and being part of this podcast. I, um, I'm really excited about this and I think it's a perfect timing uh, given where we're at in, in the world. And so um, thank you for your contribution. And thank you, Marisol, for the questions that you asked and even just having us on and thank yes. you from Campus Compact. Yeah, thank you so much. We hope everyone enjoyed um, hearing from uh, our interviewees. And uh, now it's time for our Sparks Joy. So, Andrew, for you, what's been sparking some joy? So uh, what's been sparking joy for me has to do with the fact that I am, as many people know uh, who are regular listeners to the podcast, a kind of planning nerd uh, obsessed with uh, urban spaces. I'm really interested in architecture in lots of ways. And one of the things that has been happening in the context of the pandemic is that there's been just a lot of people doing interesting thinking and writing and visualizations on the future of cities, on the future of architecture, on designing for both, you know, things like how we can have more bikes as part of transit when people can't crowd onto public transit, how buildings can better accommodate the kinds of disasters we may face in the future, given that we learned that many of the physical spaces we have now are not very well designed for this reality. Uh, so I've just been reading a lot. There was a great piece on architecture in the Washington Post. Um, the Times did a whole big thing on kind of bicycles and the, the city and uh, how you know New York City in particular, but other cities can accommodate. And so for me, it's just been all kinds of interesting stuff to read. And, you know, I think we we generally aren't very good at imagining that the world could be very different from the way that it is right now. And we do well when we open ourselves up to that possibility. And this is obviously a series of terrible things that have happened that have prompted that kind of thinking. But the fact that at least we are, I think, opened up in some different ways, uh, it's both just personally interesting for me, but I also think it, it allows us to begin visualizing other ways of living and organizing our spaces that hopefully uh, we will not fail to take advantage of. So that's all been sparking some joy for me. Well, I think what's been sparking joy for me, even though it's um, it's a little bit crazy, but it's uh, I've been connecting with my friends a, a lot more and um, checking in and the people who uh, have been um, offering to provide help or bring by a meal or 
you know, just kind of uh, spend some time as we're doing the transition with my mom being home and needing more, um, you know, kind of 24-hour care. And then my sister and father and I, even Diego, are, are playing in that. So for me, it's really what's sparking joy is this idea of community that even in these kind of hard times, people step up for for one another. And I'm seeing that in more practical ways in my own life. And, uh, and I have to say, like, um, my mom has a funny sense of, of humor, so it's it's been uh, it's been good sort of tapping into that right now in this moment, like increased stress for all of us as we're figuring out how to do you know hospital beds and lawyer lifts and all of this other stuff that comes with being recent amputees. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a little uh, sometimes gallows humor, dark humor, whatever it may be, can go can go a long way. So, yes. She's like, I mean, I don't know if it's like she's not totally there yet, but she's like, you know, they cut my leg off. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, that's why I'm down here doing this kind of because of that. But it's it's been funny how we've kind of tried to find some humor in whatever the, this is right now. How about for you, Emily? That's sparking joy. Yeah, well, um, just today, because it's been on my mind, I have two friends um, for whom the journey to getting pregnant was very long and very difficult, and they are both due very soon, and I'm getting extremely excited, and I have done a lot of online shopping for them, and um, it's been a little tough. It's tough not to see friends and and to know that I don't know when I will meet their babies, but it's still really exciting. And as you said, uh, uh, Marisol, there's there's hope and there's light in dark times. And um, I'm just, just really, really excited. Although from what you can hear in the background, like, why would anyone have children? Like, this is a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Um that's, I mean, that's who we are, like all of those pieces of us. So I, I, I've, I feel like I've been lucky in my life to, to be in places that have, has accepted all those pieces of me, whether it's caring for my parents or having, having a little one dragging him everywhere I went. So it's all good. And that's what makes you, uh, you and the work that you do so meaningful. Um, Oh, another spark joy for me is I ordered a drum. I don't know when it's going to come, but it's going to come soon. So what kind of drum? A, it's a bomba drum. So it's like part of the Afro-Puerto Rican uh, musical tradition of bomba. And so I ordered a bomba drum from a friend of mine, and I'm excited. So maybe sometime next year, I'll, when I feel confident enough to play it out loud for people, we'll, we'll have another drum segment on the combat nation. That's the name of our podcast. I'll tell you what. If I if I had a nickel for every time people like tweet at us at hashtag Compact Nation Pod, and they're like, "Where is the solo drum segment?" I I would. I don't know if I could do our whole budget, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. One nickel at a time. Password in the future. Um, well, that's it for Compact Nation Podcast. See, I remembered the name. Uh, thanks for listening. And as always, don't forget to rate and review our show. If you have any questions, suggestions, just email, it, uh, email us at podcast at compact.org 
or chime in on social media with the hashtag uh, CompactNationPod. And um, thanks. It's so good to see you. And this is our last podcast of the season. It has been a long one. How many episodes have we done? We're waiting for producer Molly to yes, ring in. Yes, Molly, how many episodes have we done? 18. Wow. 18 plus a virtual conference plus a lot of webinars. Uh, you have been getting your money's worth, folks, this year. So, uh, And don't forget to renew. It's renewal time. We want to see you here next year. Yep. And if uh, if you need to talk to a president or a provost or whatever, this this would be an excellent time to do it and remind them of, as Marisol said, all that compact content that has been coming your way this year and every year. That's right. Thanks, everyone. And bye. Until next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in the Leather District of Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Altiorem Leeper. Music is by Andrew Savage. You can find more of his music at andrewsavage.net. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. Thanks for listening. I am the podcat.